Tombstone. Tombstone. Chris, it's time to wind up the old pop story and clock. Are you ready? I'm ready. The Popstorian Podcast with Chris and Ben. Wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. Greatest crash in the history of the New York Stock Exchange. And market a market. date which will live in infamy. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. What are you supposed to do when you see the flash? Duck and cover. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That's one small step for man. One well, I'm not a crook. Might have gotten away with it, too. It wasn't for these blasted kids and their dogs. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The evil of the river. Ah! I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. Great power comes great responsibility. This is a full-length, <laughs> full-tilt boogie episode of the pop story and podcast it is our 10th episode yeah counting from western by the decade we're 10 chris we're 10 uh we're we now have... older than both of your kids combined wow when you think about it that way when you think about it that way yeah we do have one more episode for westerns by the decade and then we're done yep so I guess this kind of marks, not really, but uh, 10 episodes, 10 decades, kind of 100 years. It's not really. Just about, yeah. Well, no, actually it is, because uh, 1903 to 1993. Yeah. It's pretty much 100 years right here. Exactly. So yeah, as, uh, as we said before the, the credits, we're talking about Tombstone today. Right. And this is our 100th year mark of film history right here. That's why they released it in 93, isn't it? I think so. Okay. That makes sense. I was like, wait, that's way too <laughs> way, way, much, way, way too uh, coincidental. The there, there's definitely some, uh, some connections going on there because you've got Harry Carey Jr. in the movie. And Robert Harry Mitchum. Carey, Harry Carey Sr. was uh, working with John Ford in the days when Wyatt Earp would have been hanging around Hollywood. Yeah. And so then... Kind uh, of a direct link, almost. Almost there, you know, six degrees to Wyatt Earp. Harry Carey Jr. worked with John Ford a lot as well, and then yep. worked with John Wayne mm -hmm. uh, in his production company. But Robert Mitchum uh, narrates this film... Charlton Heston, uh, major movie star, but also did a lot of westerns as well. They're both in this movie as well. Is this Kurt Russell's first western? Um, or did he do one before this? I should know that. I don't. I don't know. I don't. I'm not as familiar with Kurt Russell's early career, uh, other than I know he did some Disney movies. He was a pretty big star by this point. It's interesting. He's done quite a few Westerns after this film. Yeah, I was going to say, this might be the first time that he really kind of takes flight as a Western star. Which is, it is I know before this, he was known for Escape from New York and uh, The Thing and Escape from, uh, or not Escape from, uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Right. 
Those he's were kind of like his breakout films. But star. since then, he's made Hateful Eight and uh, Bone Tomahawk. Uh, Isn't he in that? Bone Tomahawk. So he's, he's kind of a modern Western icon. Yeah, but not as... Uh, I guess so. Not as much as his co-star, Sam Elliott, in this film. Right. <laughs> Actually, it's kind of hard to find any movies that Sam Elliott is not playing a Western star. Yeah. Even when he's not uh, in a Western, he's kind of got a Western... Still vibe <laughs> it's the voice you can't get past the voice and the mustache and the mustache yeah he's in um, uh, also, the uh, big lebowski which is kind of uh he plays is kind he? of a cowboy narrator i've actually never seen big lebowski it's kind of been on my list of movies to watch my wife uh, has never seen it either so we'll have to watch it together I love the way that that works out. It's like, well, your wife's never seen it, and you've never seen it, so let's just watch it together. <laughs> we'll have a movie viewing party. Um, but as often happens with us, we've drifted away from Tombstone. <laughs> so I think we need to do our traditional long, rambling summary. Right. I was thinking about plagiarizing Wikipedia, kind of reading their <laughs> synopsis. Just to speed things along, but I think that would be cheating. So like we must... our last movie, Silverado, <laughs> Tombstone is kind of a long, rambling uh, ensemble piece. Although not quite to the extent that... that uh... Not really to that extent, no. There is one major character in the film. That's Wyatt Earp. I'll give you ten guesses. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, when you start the movie off, it actually starts off with some footage from the Great Train Robbery, our first episode. Yep. And uh, they talk about the Cowboys, which in the film, I believe they kind of describe them as one of America's first uh, organized crime syndicates. Right, yeah. And so you kind of see them you go uh, and they end up in this town ready to ambush uh, this Mexican couple who has just gotten married. Mm -hmm. And uh, apparently he had killed two of their compatriots and they're there for revenge. And so they then in turn massacre the entire wedding party. Yeah. And the, right down the, to the priest in the end. Well, the priest is last. He, he starts yelling at them from the Bible and tells them that vengeance will rain down on them. Um, and then he is killed, and uh, was it Michael Bean? Is that how you say his name? I believe so. Uh, he plays Johnny Ringo, and he translates this as a, a, an, a part from Revelation where a pale rider will come. Right. And uh, Johnny Ringo being a real historical figure. Is he? I yeah. have not done that research mm -hmm. on that. He is. Actually, I, I don't done... think he's uh, popped up in our previous. He didn't. Film he didn't pop Wyatt up. Herb. He didn't pop up in My Darling Clementine. I have not uh, done a whole lot of the research for Wyatt Earp on this episode. Yeah, since we, we did, did a so lot much. of. <laughs> if you want to know more about Wyatt Earp, <laughs> the non myth versus the reality mythology thing. 
Check out our uh, My Darling Clementine episode. Which that's another thing. This is uh, our second historical-ish Western and our second Western about Quiet Earth. So. A very different approach here. Yes. So anyway... Um, this, uh, this opening sequence feels almost spaghetti Western, though, in a way. The kind of... Uh, it's definitely something that you couldn't have done before the revisionist Western era because of its is, brutality and just that's general... true maturity i guess and it's something that the the 1990s is that they're trying to i guess and particularly in this film is that they try to pull everything from the past 90 years plus making it more realistic if that makes sense right and so. it does feel a bit uh we can get into this later but it does feel like a bit of a hodgepodge of different yeah. styles and elements kind of thrown together but anyway we cut away so, from our banditos to uh the wyatt clan or the erp clan sorry <laughs> well wyatt Earp, you know he's yeah it's kind of it. <laughs> anyway he gets off the train and they're trying to recruit him to be a marshal again which he says i'm and, retired <laughs> before they even finish their pitch he's confirming that he's retired and he's uh he's basically come with his brothers to settle down in this this up and coming town and get rich make some money yeah so tombstone actually was a an up and coming town during the uh the latter part of the 19th century it was a boom town mm-hmm. and it was actually as they portray it very uh very cosmopolitan mm-hmm. uh minus the whole wild west element to it gunshots being fired at the okay corral and all that right but they had theaters uh, they had a lot of uh, uh i guess gaming establishments as you kind of see in this part of the film do you remember what uh what brought the boom there was it the railroad it was silver silver okay it was silver mining so which is another big difference uh my darling clementine the herbs come with uh as a cattleman, right, which you can't really <laughs> do any cattle out there. It's very hard to do cattle out there, even though there are some ranches. <laughs> um, but it was my, mainly silver mining. Would that be the absence of grassland? That yeah, it's very causing some difficulty. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Plus, I think Tombstone is close to the desert. So, mm-hmm. anyway, moving on. Um, he's reunited with his, his two brothers, Morgan Earp or Morgan and, uh, Virgil, mm-hmm. who are played by Bill Paxton and Sam Elliott, respectively, Morgan Verge. And they're, their wives, which we're introduced to, uh, Wyatt Earp's common law wife, who is apparently addicted to laudanum. She's having a rough time of it. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember what it comes after this part. I believe this is when they get involved with the Oriental, which is a right. saloon in town that's that's kind of uh, known for its crookedness, I guess, and is also not super popular with the populace because of its crookedness. 
well, it's just this kind of this one table guy uh, who's played oh, by who's Billy Bob Thornton. Kind and of he's, bullying he's a, everybody. <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a bully. He doesn't feel straight. Um, so no one wants to go in there except people who are really desperate and been thrown out everywhere else. Right. So Earp goes in and uh, says, if I get rid of him, he, you can get me part of the table or something like that. And so basically he uh, chases him out. Who's The dealer is played by Billy Bob Thornton in one of his early roles. And uh, he, he, uh, it's one of the more iconic scenes in the film, challenging him without drawing his gun. Yeah, and it definitely uh, is a good example of uh, kind of a Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, well, not Teddy Roosevelt. That's the wrong. He's more speak softly, carry a big stick. He's kind right. of, He kind of uses a... Uh, he has an authority from having confronted and having his reputation that he doesn't even have to draw a gun to scare hey. off his enemies and he doesn't uh, he doesn't even introduce himself in the in the the scene he just kind of walks up to him and knows that uh he calls his bluff a, essentially yeah as, as this bully he's always bluffing so he goes go ahead try it which i think is actually quite uh in quite historical in tone mm -hmm. um if not in actual events because he uh Whitehawk was known of going in and not pulling his gun on people, but kind of just uh, talking them down and then hitting them over the head and <laughs> dragging them off the jail. Right. This is where the movie starts to get interesting for me because it's a uh, it's a different kind of approach to the kind of gunslinger movie that you might be expecting. Mm -hmm. It's more it's much more of a dialogue driven kind of film, and I say that you say that, and it sounds like oh, it's really talky. But the dialogue is really, really well written. It is. There are several parts that are that are just famous for the uh, not just for just really kind of just some of the wit that's in it, and particularly uh, Val Kilmer's character mm -hmm. Doc Holliday, who is introduced at this time. Yeah. So um, I believe he's uh, the. It's is it the guy who he kicks out the bully. Yeah, he's coming around with a shotgun. He goes and gets a shotgun because he's mad. Yeah. <laughs> and he doesn't realize that he's tangling with Wyatt Earp. <laughs> yeah. And, and so he comes around the corner and he's like, Doc? <laughs> and apparently Doc Holliday had had dealings with him before. He's like, "Right, hello. <laughs> it's like, this is Wyatt Earp. <laughs> and then they start, start talking because they're old friends by this point. Right, so Doc and Wyatt are reunited. Doc kind of uh, saves his life or gives him a heads up that this uh, this clown is coming after him with a shotgun. Yeah, but it's it's kind of funny here is because uh, Billy Bob Thornton's character is just kind of dumbfounded, <laughs> and then Doc Holliday comes and turns to him and he's like, "Oh, are you still there? I kind of forgot about you." <laughs> <laughs> I love that scene anyway. Um, but uh, Wyatt Earp's like, "Just leave the shotgun," and <laughs> he kind of wanders off. Wow. And you never see him again, actually. No, nope, he disappears. The, the um, so we're introduced to Val Kilmer's uh, Doc Holliday, who looks very uh, tubercular. 
much more so than uh, say Victor Mature was yeah. uh, in the My Darling Clementine. No. He's very ill the whole time. I think the uh, are we at the point where the the cowboys ride into town? They are introdu- introduced to the cowboys through Harry Carey Jr., who's talking about them as kind of being the real law. And then they're also introduced to the uh, county sheriff who's trying to get them to buy some land. Right. Is he the sheriff or the mayor? He's the sheriff. The mayor also plays a part in the film. Right. So at this point, they're kind of meeting everybody in town and getting the lay of the land. Right. I think our female lead is introduced around this time. She the rides into town on the on a stagecoach. Who is who plays her? Oh, Dana Delaney, I think. Dana Delaney. I'll look it up real okay. quick. Okay. No, it is. I looked it up. Dana Delaney. She delivers an excellent performance, I think. She also arrives with Billy Zane. There's a lot of names on here. Right. People that you would see and recognize in other films, people who become a little bit more famous later on. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, like of course, Bill Paxton's pretty young in this. But you also have Michael Rooker shows up in the film. Billy Zane. Uh, Stephen Lang. Quite a few, quite a few folks here. But anyway, so... While Wyatt Earp is kind of dealing with his feelings about whether he stays with his drug-addicted wife or run off with an actress, Doc Holliday becomes sicker, and things become more tense with the Cowboys as Mm -hmm. they have continued run-ins with each other back and forth. Um, One particular event happens when, uh, I think I guess things really start rolling here, with uh, Curly Bill who is the leader of the Cowboys, uh, gets high off of opium and starts shooting up the town. And they send uh, the sheriff or the mar- town marshal out, uh, who's played by Harry Carey Jr. Mm-hmm. And uh, Curly Bill uh, shoots him. And uh, they send him off to jail, but he is acquitted for lack of witnesses. Right, that whole historically accurate, I think. But, so, I but it emphasizes in the story how uh, they are kind of controlled the, the the town, right? That the law can't touch them. Mm-hmm. And so the mayor, who is I forget who plays the mayor here. Let me look that up real quick. I don't think it says. He's he's a big character actor. I've seen him in a lot of other things too. Mm-hmm. But I forget who he is. Anyway, he's trying to get the Earps to to uh, become town marshals, and they turn him down, saying that we're here to get rich, we're here to make money. And Virgil kind of can't take it anymore, and so he becomes town marshal. This part actually is historically inaccurate because <laughs> Virgil became a a, a federal marshal. He was, in the, he was a deputy federal marshal uh, at this point, not uh, not necessarily just town, the town marshal. Interesting. 
At least that's uh, what I recall from the research it did. It's an interesting scene because it uh, it doesn't portray Wyatt Earp in the best light exactly. It kind of depicts him as uh, as a uh, reluctant hero kind yeah, of guy. Yeah, as kind of a kind of a, a a greedy capitalist almost. He wants to make money and he doesn't want to get involved in the fight or mm-hmm. or the entangled in the all the stuff that comes with trying to bring justice to the town. He just wants to conduct his business. Yeah, and stay out of trouble, basically. He, he's very angry at Verge for getting involved. So it's an interesting yeah. character moment. But uh, there is another dust-up, and they arrest a few of the the cowboys, including uh, Ike Clanton. Played mm-hmm. to perfection by Stephen Lang. Stephen Lang. And uh, I think they arrest him for being drunk. I recall correctly. Right. <laughs> uh, Monk, there's several, several kind of almost everything coming to head, and and things just kind of settling down. So, Stephen Lang is out of jail because he for being drunk, um, and then uh, they kind of, well, one of the big thing here, forgetting important part is that Virgil, the now the marshal, has put up a no guns allowed in the town order now, this uh, is and the interesting. Cowboy... i think we've talked about uh gun control mm-hmm. a little bit before but it's interesting that it's not uh again and i think we've said this i don't remember which episode we've talked about this before on but mm-hmm. the, the idea of gun control is not new no not at all and it's interesting in this film uh they depict a pretty angry mob Mm-hmm. for having this edict put up and, and Virgil's explaining to them is like I'm not saying you can't own a gun that you can't even ha- carry a gun you just can't carry a gun in town uh, and right. a lot of people are angry about that and that's an interesting moment because this is the early 90s right. that that is becoming an issue uh, that it became an issue in the 80s and it's becoming even more of an issue in the 90s right the fears uh, of kind escalating of, crime right you'll see some of the the, the Results of that when I switch over to some of the events happening in the 90s. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's interesting to kind of see that real life being portrayed here. And then uh, the Cowboys kind of throw this uh, edict out the window as they assemble at the OK Corral and they kind of say, saying, we're going to wait for you. Which is interesting because in My Darling Clementine, the gunfire of the OK Corral is the is the climax, the end of the film. It's the big shootout. Right. In this film, it's the big shootout, but it's in the middle of the movie. This is, this is the I don't know. You, you call this an apex. It's not a climax, but kind of like it's a just, midpoint. It's a turning point in the film. It's this big, yeah. big deal. And so, and this part I think is portrayed actually very historically accurate as they're they're walking down the middle of the town. Also, kind of reminiscent of the Wild Bunch, another film we've. Right. About. Yeah. Um, Virgil's holding a stick, which was switched because he had a shotgun, but then they switched it out to uh, Doc Holliday's stick in the movie, that is. And so they're walking up the street, and uh, the words that you hear in this in this gunfire is like, I don't want this, or, or uh, some of the other exclamations that they're saying is supposedly what witnesses actually heard. Uh, mm-hmm when they were actually having the trial after the gunfire of the OK Corral. So there actually was a, a law case after that. 
Yeah, they're they're moving towards the uh, the corral to go and disarm the cowboys. Yeah. Um, I don't remember uh, why is it that Doc and Wyatt are involved in helping Verge disarm them. Well, why is there some sort of an incident it, that led to that? It, it, not really. It's just it's his it's his brother, and right. so he's like, "All right, you better you better swear me in because it's going to be trouble if you keep right. this up." Yeah, and so there's, he gets sworn in, there's and already kind of bad blood along. between them and the Clantons. Yeah, and Doc comes along, and in the movie, you kind of see this character development between Doc and Wyatt Earp. That Doc, that Wyatt Earp's Doc's only true friend. Right. And Doc Holliday has been a, a gambler and a gunfighter for, I guess, all of his adult life, and he's he's never had a true friend, and, and Wyatt Earp is kind of portrays that, is that issue. And so he does everything he can in the movie to protect Wyatt Earp. Mm-hmm. And so he joins them, going down there as well. And then, the, as I guess things happen in a in a standoff, someone loses their nerve and they start pulling the triggers. And it's a lot of a lot of firing going back and forth. And this is actually quite historically accurate because uh, typically in like those Western gunfights, they weren't aiming and and you know knocking the holes out of the aces. They were shooting a lot of bullets at one another at close right. range, yeah. <laughs> and not very accurately. And right. in this this sequence, I think that is portrayed very well, yeah, in that in that context. Yeah, uh, Stephen Lang. That, um... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to kind of move on with Stephen Lang's Ike Clanton. Ah. <laughs> well, well, I love him mentioning him. What what is uh, what were you saying? Um. Well, on the way, on the way to the corral. They, uh, the sheriff, I guess he is, he calls himself the, the sheriff. He's a county sheriff. Yeah. Right. Runs up right for the county. <laughs> Not the, right. that's a city problem. Uh, he runs up exactly. to them as exactly. they're like moving towards this standoff. They're all in black and they're, they're obviously going to, to, to take it to the next level if they need to. Uh, and he says he's already disarmed them and they yeah. kind of ignore his, uh, his claim that he's disarmed them and move on anyway. Yeah. Uh, which I think is interesting. Then the other level of it is that, uh, uh, one of the characters, I believe the one who's murdered, um, or killed rather, uh, Billy Clinton, I think is the one mm-hmm. yeah. actually in the film and in real life, uh, hits, Hits two of the herbs. Yeah, it's one in the calf and the other in the wrist. So it just kind yeah, of both. reinforces that idea that there was, there was a lot of shots being fired and <laughs> some might yeah. hit, some yeah. might not. There was it, there was a lot of shots fired, yeah, and uh, that brings up a good point that I kind of forgot was that uh, the county sheriff was at odds with kind of the federal. Uh, side of things so it's i think we talked about it a little bit uh, in my darling clementine was that the backstory of this is going on is that the county like the ranchers and the and the folks outside of the town were having a rough hard time uh kind of keeping cordial with the town folk mm-hmm. who were very much uh pro-union versus pro-confederate and that civil war uh ghost keeps popping up there as well right yeah 
And uh, so that's another kind of element. They don't express that specifically in the movie, but that is happening in, that happens in the historical story. And so I kind of see that with the county sheriff being like, these are the cowboys, I kind of with them because they represent uh, this one side of the, the deal, while the federal marshals keep wanting to get the Earps involved mm -hmm. uh, on the other side of that. And so you still have that, that dynamic, the country versus the town idea. Yeah. Um, but anyway, you were right also, the two of the Earps are wounded in this conflict, in this little battle here. And uh, that will play a part in the next big scene because the Cowboys have their revenge. Because uh, um, uh, they will they'll kill Bill Paxton's character, Morgan, and they will shoot Virgil again. Uh, and he barely makes it. Yeah, he's very severely injured yeah um so wyatt is is kind of like what can i do and he tells him that it's over he kind of he rounds up all his family and they ride past the cowboys and they say well it's over and uh the cowboys want are not willing to leave it there so they like they, they send out assassins for them as mm -hmm. well so you see and uh Bird... break into their family's dwelling well, that happens when they kill Morgan and, and shoot Virgil is that they also plan on killing their wives, too. Mm -hmm. And they break down, uh, open the door to shoot them. And that's actually an important part because, uh, oh, what's, uh, what's his name? Michael Rooker's character, McMaster's, uh, gives up the Cowboys um, because he doesn't say you don't war on women, I guess. Um, but anyway, they they send uh, they send Virgil and the women folk on the train away, and then Stephen Langs, uh, Ike Clanton, and another guy I forget his name are getting ready to shoot the Earps as they leave, and uh, Wyatt Earp is behind them with a shotgun. <laughs> and, uh, he he kills the one fellow and. Ike Clanton has sur survived so many parts in this movie. I love his character. Stephen Lang just plays him amazingly well. Yeah, but he's, he's definitely my favorite supporting character. Supporting character in, in this film. film. He, he's very... Uh, the, the actor talks about trying to uh, maintain a sense that he was not... Most of the documentation we have doesn't indicate that he was a coward, even though he's usually portrayed that way in mm -hmm. films um so it's interesting the kind of like combination approach that they go for that he's kind of almost a he uses he pretends like he's a coward in order to wheel wheedle his way out of being shot <laughs> and yeah. then, then he turns around and uh rallies up the cowboys so he's kind of a a wheeler dealer in this case, he's he's sent as a messenger right. back to to the cowboys. Right. And this sets up the sequence of uh, of Wyatt Earp and his posse tracking down the remnants of the cowboys. But really, at this point, still the cowboys are pretty strong and goes after them. Mm -hmm. um, so there's the the second half of the movie kind of revolves around this rampage. Yeah, this revenge ride. Um. 
which is, I think, interesting because there's this one part during the ride in this uh, montage where Wyatt Earp kind of ducks behind his horse's head and shoots the guy that he's chasing from around the corner, like off his horse. Mm -hmm. And when you think about how difficult that would be <laughs> and compared to like the accuracy or historical accuracy of the OK Corral and how many bullets they were firing off, you think this would be almost impossible to do right. from a full gallop behind a horse uh, at another man galloping at full speed. And it just kind of made me think about how this film is calling back to the older Westerns again. You kind of see that yeah. kind of shot in the in the 30s and maybe even the 20s. Or even kind, kind of, of like the, the Wild Bill Hickok and the rodeo shows. Right, the the wild wild the wild west shows exactly yeah. the kind of like trick riding and shooting and right, so it's calling back to the, that older tradition again there. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, they track them. The cowboys kind of ambush them in this creek, and uh, Wyatt Earp doesn't know what to do, so he kind of just kind of goes nuts here. He's like, "Not today!" and he he charges <laughs> them in full eighties combat mode right. kind of gone rambo and he's yeah. in the middle of the creek and uh curly bill is like okay and he goes out and he's he's he gets killed uh by wyatt earp and, that, and then the other cowboys run away which right, sets despite up for the, the fact that uh he fired he basically empties his gun at wyatt earp and misses every time yeah like he he's right there in the middle of the crossfire and he's not hit at all um and then, of course, uh, Curly Bill gets killed, which sets up uh, Johnny Johnny Ringo as the leader of the Cowboys uh, for the final act of the film. Uh, but as soon after this, Doc gets really sick, and they take him to this ranch where Doc is uh, Doc is being cared for. Mm -hmm. And then they uh, the Cowboys call McMaster's to come talk about you know a piece or just kind of come back to the Cowboys and uh, Michael Rooker's character says no, and they kill him. Mm -hmm. And then they send a message saying that uh, Johnny Ringo wants to a showdown with Wyatt Earp. And so Wyatt Earp uh, down McMaster's and Doc being sick in bed, feel like he really has no choice but to face off against a gunslinger who's a lot, he acknowledges is a lot better at, at mm -hmm. the, the skill of a gun than he is. And uh, he prepares himself for this this meeting. And Doc kind of plays possum a little bit here, says, I want a, I want a badge just to kind of hold. And so Wyatt says, OK, and gives him his badge. And then he kind of rides off going to this uh, gunfight. And then you're, you're kind of cut to Johnny Ringo waiting for Wyatt Earp mm -hmm. and thinking that Wyatt Earp is coming to see him when then suddenly you realize it's Doc Holliday meeting him. And they've had several several uh, interactions throughout the film, some really great memorable lines between <laughs> the two of them. Yeah. Uh, Including a, they, a battle film, of wits in Latin. <laughs> yeah. They portray both these characters as uh, educated gentlemen who have turned to the way of the gun. Mm -hmm. So it's it's an interesting... I'm not... I'm sure that's, that's a... Uh, a trope from an older western as well but i can't think of any at the top of my head where that comes from but they face off in this final final gunfight and of course doc wins 
um, Wyatt Earp hearing the gunshot comes or running in trying to figure out who's in trouble, I guess, mm -hmm. and uh, finds that Doc has already killed Johnny Ringo. Mm -hmm. And then uh, his very ill health at this point. Yeah, uh, Val Kilmer even, or Don, uh, Doc Holliday, Val Kilmer's character, even says that it's like, <laughs> I'm not as sick as I pretended to be. Uh, <laughs> they, and then they, they say, well, let's finish this. And uh, and then they, I guess they kind of run down the rest of the Cowboys, except for Ike Clanton, who renounces his, his connection to the Cowboys. Uh -huh. And uh, if I remember right, in the end credits, they say that Ike Clanton was killed sometime later for some robbery or something like that. Right. So you don't actually see... Never could straighten that boy out. Never could. At so anyway... The, uh, the film version. <laughs> <laughs> so we've uh, finally reached the end of Tombstone. Yeah, there's a few... Uh... I guess housekeeping bits. I, I believe somewhere in there, Wyatt's wife dies. No, um, or leaves him. I, I think she just kind of. We're left to assume that she leaves him, or he leaves her. Uh -huh. They don't. They're not real specific about that. Um, Doc leaves his but, girlfriend, which is kind yeah, of a subplot. That's true. Uh, and he Doc does eventually die of his tuberculosis. He ends up in a uh, an institute for mm -hmm. tubercular uh, patients, and there's the scene uh, where Wyatt goes to see him, and uh, Doc Holliday tells him to go find his actress. Yeah. Now I don't. Was this like an extended version that we got to watch, Ben? Uh, I'm not sure which I, one it was, to be honest with you. There's in a, this there's film a that director's we watched, cut and a, a theatrical version. In this version that we watched, Wyatt Earp actually goes to a theater and finds the actress, uh, Josephine, the mm -hmm. first name, and they, uh, I guess, run off together. Yep. Kind of, it's kind of snowing, and then they and they have this romantic kiss moment. It's a very romantic thing. I don't remember seeing that the first time I watched the film, but it's been a very long time since the first time I watched the film, and this time. So I don't know if that was in the actual theatrical version or if this was the director's cut that we watched. We watched it on DVD, so I believe yeah. it is the director's cut. Okay. Which would now, make sense with your uh, I have a question memory. for you, Ben. Um, what director are they talking about when they say director's cut? Mm, that's a great question. So the, the director's audio commentary on the DVD is George Cos uh, Cosmatos. Yeah. Who's credited as the director on the film. But there's a little bit of uh, complications on that. So should I get into the backstory? Yes, please get into the backstory of this. I think it's a classic. I, I actually enjoyed this film a lot more than uh, I'd say most of the other films that we watched in the series. I agree. Uh, it's a classic Western. I don't know that I it's one of my lesser favorites of the of the ones that we've watched. It's definitely in the. The bottom half for me um it, it, i'm in it's, for me it's in the upper half yeah yeah um i think it relies a little too heavily on nostalgia and uh -huh. part of part of my reaction to it is i 
I wasn't expecting when you watch a movie about Wyatt Earp and the gunfight at the OK Corral. Right. Your thought is always that the climax of the movie is going to be the the fight at the OK Corral, because <laughs> that's right. kind of the way that it's we've been shaped to think of the event. Which most most movies that's exactly what happens. Right. Um, I like the relationship between Wyatt and Doc. I think that's kind of what makes this movie special. Is the the, yeah. the relationship between those two characters that they created, um, and you need the second half of the story to tell that story through, right? But the movie yeah. keeps wandering off into these other plots that aren't as engaging or aren't as well done. Yeah, I feel like they set up a lot of stuff with the uh, the cowboys that they perhaps could have uh, explained better, or we don't really follow the cowboys very much after that opening scene where they were kind of like characters on their own without, without the herbs involvement. But after that, I don't think they really appear without an herb on the scene. (laughs) Do you think that was because of the kind of confusion going on, uh, and the change of directors? Um, I'm not entirely sure why, and it might not even be a legitimate criticism. It's just things that caught me kind of unawares. And those right. are the, like the reasons that I don't, I wouldn't rank it as highly as perhaps you would. It is right. a, a very good movie and an interesting kind of counterpoint to what Clint Eastwood was doing at the time, which was Unforgiven. Right. Yeah. He did very that different kind of, before. Also kind of a legacy movie, but a, a different approach. Yeah. So this movie began life uh, with a writer named Kevin Jar. Um, I assume it's pronounced Jar. It's J-A-R-R-E. And he's actually the adopted son of a composer named Maurice Jar, whose scores you've probably heard. He just did, uh, he's famous for doing kind of rousing, high-energy scores. I believe he does The Great Escape and Grand Prix and a bunch of uh, large 60s movies. But anyway, Kevin Jar is a uh, is a writer, and he he writes the script for Tombstone. And they uh, he was originally working with Kevin Costner to make a Wyatt Earp movie, and they they had some disagreements about the direction that Kevin was or uh, that Jar was taking the script. Yeah, and they split off, and Kevin Costner went on to make his own Wyatt Earp movie while Kevin Jar was making this movie. And Kevin Jar was assigned to direct. Uh, but by the time they got onto set, it became clear to most of the crew agree that he wasn't doing the best job of being a director, that he was sticking too close to the screenplay and not, uh, not being free and taking too long to get the shots. The studio was anxious to, uh, to get the movie made. Right. And so he's actually fired from directing his uh, from his directorial debut. It would have been after shooting only a few scenes. I think the scenes with Charlton Heston's character are the scenes that he oh. directed. Um, but then different sources claim that they reshot all of that anyway. So it's hard to know if he directed any of the movie at all that we, as far as finished footage that we've seen. Uh, right. The director they bring in is. Uh, uh, George Cos- Cosmatos, 
who's known for doing genre films, particularly um, some horror films. He's worked with Sylvester Stallone a couple of times, a couple of sequels, uh, and and, uh, big-budget genre pictures like Leviathan, which is a a kind of sci-fi horror take on the alien predator type of genre. So he's not uh he's not really the person that you would think of when you think of a, a western. Yeah. And uh he passed away in 2005. So about 12 years after this film comes out. Yeah. And later on there there kind of became more and more whisperings that even George Cosmatos was not the one really directing the movie. That right. Kurt Russell uh, took the reins and is kind of the one that got the movie made. And it right. seems to me, this is based on my limited research, so uh, take it for what it is. <laughs> it seems to me that, that Kurt Russell definitely was very involved, perhaps more involved than a leading actor normally is in making right. decisions on yeah. on tombstone uh he's come out subsequently since uh cosmato's death and said i directed the film i kept it a secret while george was alive to protect his integrity and his reputation because i respect him as a director but he was i really just didn't want credit for directing at the time and i i was uh stepping up to the plate and kind of carrying the movie. Yeah. Which but, his, uh, his, some of his co-stars, including uh, Sam Elliott actually kind of back him up on that statement. Right. Some of the co-stars do, uh, but some of them, nearly all of them do that with kind of reservation. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's some sort of uh, controversy there. A lot of the behind-the-scenes footage that I've seen shows Cosmatos directing. And, of course, all that could be staged. Um, mm-hmm. So, it's to me, it's a bit of a mystery. And I think there's probably some, uh, some sections where there's some overlap. Yeah. But I'm not ready to completely dismiss Cosmatos' input and say that Kurt Russell... Ghost directed the movie, and uh, Cosmatos was just a, a name to put on the marquee. Kind of like, it's right. similar to what people say about uh, Return of the Jedi, which was directed by Richard Marquand, but people say that George Lucas held the reins so tightly as a producer that he was the yeah. one actually calling the shots. Or, um, there's one or two Spielberg movies that people have said that about, too. I can't think of which ones off the top of my head. But I'm not really sure, not having been there. And the the, the reports from set vary. Right. And so, you know, it's, it is, of course, credible that, that Russell might have waited till Cosmatos had passed on before he revealed his uh, his his true colors. But it's also plausible that he waited until there was no one to contradict him to jump in and change the story. 
Okay. So yeah, a bit of a mystery. Uh, depending on who you ask, there's an article on uh, True West Magazine has an article, an interview with Kurt Russell, where he kind of tells his side of the story. So don't just take my word for it, but go check that out and see, uh, hear it from the horse's mouth. So to kind of continue the um, the alternate version, the Wyatt Earp movie that never was, uh, or that, that was, but was different. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin uh, Costner. Kevin Costner went forward and made his uh, his Wyatt Earp movie, which is kind of more about the life of Wyatt Earp generally. Yeah. And it's a very big, long movie. I, I feel like Tombstone is kind of long. Wyatt yeah, Earp is much longer. <laughs> I think Wyatt Earp is like twice as long. Yeah, it's a, it's a whopper. I've never actually successfully made it through Wyatt Earp. <laughs> despite uh, having good reasons to try. Um, I feel like I've seen it once, but I don't remember if I made it all the way through. Yeah, it's a it's a bit of a whopper. So it comes out six months after Tombstone. Tombstone was a hit, not a massive hit, um, but definitely in the top movies of that year. It makes uh, $50 million at the box office, which is twice its budget of $25 million. Uh, that's pretty that's pretty substantial right there that's a that's a respectable gross for a film now you think about advertising and promoting a movie of that scale it probably costs around 20 25 million dollars so they but that puts you in the territory of well now we've made our budget back in the box office everything we make in home video is profit and of course home video was booming in this in this right. time in the 90s vhs was was king and subsequently yeah. dvd and blu-ray so that i'm sure the film is uh has done quite well on the books over the years wyatt earp by contrast uh cost about 65 million and returned wow. something something like 17 million i want to say um I think it's a little bit better than that. I'm just just looking at the numbers. It's like 25 million. 25 million. So it's interesting yeah. the kind of like flip flop there between 25 million dollar budget, 50 million dollar profit, over 50 million dollar budget, 25 million dollar in income. It's a bit of yeah, a, a bit of a swap between the two. But uh, of course, Spider comes later, and it's like twice as long. So I guess right. That makes so it's a different. Sense. And it released at a different time of year. Time of year makes a big difference in, in when movies yeah. come out and how they're received by the public. So it's interesting. The uh, the writer of Wyatt Earp is a man called Dan Gordon. Uh, and Dan claimed that uh, the the picture was butchered by Costner and the studio that they they totally wrecked his vision of a life story for Wyatt Earp. And he actually writes a novel about Wyatt Earp. That's won a few awards and is out and around somewhere. So if you're interested in a novel about the life of Wyatt Earp, look for Dan Gordon's book. I'll probably try to look that up. I would like to find it and read it, but I've never found a copy of it. It's uh, it's also worth noting that, uh, 
this is a pretty clear example. Both of these movies are pretty clear examples of uh, with the Costamos jar Russell dilemma and the Dan Gordon kind of refusing to accept blame for the failure of Wyatt Earp. Uh, the it's a it's a very it's a confirmation of the truism that uh, success has many fathers, but failure is always an orphan. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's definitely true yeah. in the case of these two movies. Well, so what's happening in the night? This movie comes out in '93, mm-hmm. um, and that's really that's well into the '90s by that point. So the '90s has two U.S. presidents that we see: mm-hmm. uh, George Bush uh, and Bill Clinton. George Bush is kind of a, a kind of a leftover from the Reagan administration. He, right. he tries to distance VP, himself right? a little bit. He was the uh, vice president, yeah. Uh, so he distances himself a little bit as he's getting elected for president, and even changes uh, some of the policies that he didn't really agree with under Reagan. Um, but for the most part, a lot of people see him as kind of a continuation of that of that Reagan era. Mm-hmm. And then Bill Clinton gets elected and becomes president in 1993. So that's kind of a uh, a turning point at that point. And uh, Bill Clinton will continue to be president throughout the next uh, the next eight years. So he'll finish up the 90s. So yeah. I would kind of say the 90s are pretty much the Clinton era yeah. in many ways. Is it fair to say that um, George Herbert Walker Bush was kind of a more moderate version of Reagan? I think that is that is fair to say. I think uh, 1980s Republicans are trying to kind of are trying to figure out who they are for the most part. And Reagan was so successful that a lot of people were still underneath that mold, trying to mold themselves after Reagan. And uh, Bush uh, kind of is is kind of sees himself, but we can change our perception of Republicans, and we we still have a lot of fluid here. So he's very much of a moderate. But mm-hmm. then on the other hand, Bill Clinton, who is a Democrat, is also very much a moderate. Right. So you kind of see the, the, the 90s becoming very middle ground in a lot of issues. Uh, you kind of see that very moderate, that moderate philosophy. I think that's probably why today's politics seems so crazy, because the 90s kind of had the central center right, portion yeah. for so long. That in a way isn't really typical. Yeah, it, that's true. I think people of our generation look back on the '90s and think of it as our normal because that's where we grew up. Yeah, but I think but if looking you... back at the looking back at the '70s and '80s, uh-huh. I think uh, I think you're right. I think the '90s is kind of an abnormal middle ground for both parties. Kind of an anomaly politically. Yeah. There are a few big events that happen. Um, one, I think, we've been kind of mentioning throughout the whole series, of course, is the Cold War. Mm. The Cold War finally comes to an end during the late 80s and the early 90s. And so in 1990, the East West, East and West Germany are reunited, and wow. the Soviet Union fully collapses. Um, so they start breaking down the Berlin Wall, um, and that's, that's in April April through October, uh, that East and West Germany finally are united. 
and the, the Berlin Wall just comes down. Also in 1990, Margaret Thatcher resigns as prime minister. Um, Poland, his first direct presidential election, um, oh, yeah. by the name of Lech Walesa. So Poland is no longer underneath that, uh, the, the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. In 91, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev resigns. Um, the Cold War officially ends and is dissolved. Uh, conservative members of the party try to uh, depose uh, Gorbachev in a coup d'etat. Um, but his, uh, I forget what Boris Yeltsin really is to him, but it's he's kind of a, uh, it's not, he's not a, a political ally in any sense, but Boris Yeltsin kind of defends him and uh, will eventually become president of the, of Russia, wow. and it's Boris Yeltsin who uh, who kind of will take Russia into the next next generation of their history. Mm-hmm. So that's happening in the early '90s. There, another interesting thing is technology. You see a lot of technology happening in the '90s. Um, space in the space race, the Hubble telescope is launched in 1990, mm-hmm. and uh, Tim Berners-Lee publishes a formal proposal for the World Wide Web. And in 91, the World Wide Web will become publicly uh, serve, become a public service or be publicly accessible. Wow. So you have the, the end of uh, the Cold War and the beginning of the, uh, the Internet. Pandora's box pops open. <laughs> Once more. <laughs> Once um, more. Yeah. Because of the the end of the Cold War, you see a lot of uh, I think I think you see a lot of conflict in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So the Gulf War will take place in 91. Um, that doesn't directly uh, connect it to the Cold War, but I think Saddam Hussein, who had been uh, kind of allied to the U.S. Uh, in a way, just kind of keep away from the Soviets. Mm-hmm kind of becomes a loose cannon in 91 and he's like the you know, the Americans are not going to do anything if I decide to say invade Kuwait right um, which he will do and the United States does something and there's a coalition that forces him out mm-hmm. so that's the Gulf War in 91 uh, which actually uh, is a boon to to Bush and to uh, American patriotism or spirit mm-hmm. because they're so worried about uh, having another Vietnam um, right. They kind of push them out of Kuwait and then just stay there at the border. They don't go into Iraq. Right. And it becomes a more of a less of a quagmire, at least right. so it appeared at the time. So, yeah, they, they, they have all these set goals. They accomplish all the goals. They say, yay, it's a victory. Um, and they but they, they let Saddam Hussein continue running Iraq. So. Uh, it's kind of interesting comparing the first Gulf War with the, the 21st century Gulf War. Yeah, very. Um, we talked a little bit about the AIDS epidemic in the 80s, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, well, we In the did. early 90s, in 91, Magic Johnson comes out and says that he had contracted HIV, which was a big deal because he is, uh, I think, probably the first straight celebrity to to admit that he had contracted HIV. Right. Um, so that was a big deal because up to that point, a lot of uh, public perception was that only gays had AIDS. Right. Uh, so yeah. So this was a kind of a big deal that this was more than more than a, a gay issue. It was a, a health worldwide health issue. Yeah. 
And also lead singer Freddie Mercury dies of AIDS in 91. Mm-hmm. In 1992, there's another issue that I, I kind of want to touch on before we move on, uh, the Rodney King riots. So yes. right now, we're we're seeing a lot of uh, riots or protests um, regarding police brutality. Mm-hmm. And this is not a new thing. In 1992... Specifically, Rodney, police brutality and racism. Yes. Uh, Rodney King was a motorist in Los Angeles, and he was pulled over. Uh, apparently, uh, he tried to resist or something like that, and four police officers beat him to death. Uh, and this was caught on camera. And they were these four police officers were tried and then acquitted, which caused uh, a huge uproar in the African-American community and, and what they call the Los Angeles riots now. And that happened in 92. Yeah. So the, that's not a new thing. Amazing uh, how how we can still be dealing with the same issues today. Yeah, that's 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. We're still dealing, dealing with that issue. Um, let's see what else before I'm kind of caught in the 90s, 92 and 93. In 93, uh, the Branch Davidians have a standoff in Waco, Texas, where 81 people were killed, including the leader, David Koresh. And that kind of sparks some of that conversation about uh, gun control and, and different things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, don't Ask, Don't Tell is signed. Uh, which uh, prohibits gays from openly serving in the military, um, but it requires that they can serve, but their commanding officers just can't ask them their sexual orientation, which gotcha. is a compromise that Clinton worked out uh, that neither, neither side was very happy with. So right. it became a, a kind of pretty big political nightmare there. Um, Russia and the United States continue to talk uh, they have a treaty, START two, which talks about kind of bringing their nuclear weapons down again. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Oslo Accords are taking place in 93. Israeli and Palestine and are talking about peace, um, which is a, a very big deal. Yeah. Uh, I think that may have been the first time the two had really sat down together and talked. Right. Wow. 94, the North American Free Trade Agreement goes into effect. NAFTA. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a big big deal for Clinton. And then, of course, uh, the sexual harassment scandal started piling up, starting with uh, Paula Jones, uh, popped up in 94. And then uh, by 1998, the Monica Lewinsky case will be in full swing. Monica Lewinsky? Who was that? (laughs) You're you're joking, right? I I am joking. Uh, So... That was a, a big scandal, and I think that's probably been the most memorable part of Clinton's administration. Right, yeah. Uh, which is kind of unfortunate when you think about some of the other issues that were coming up during the 90s. Yeah, a lot um, of uh, interesting stuff. Also kind of uh, connected to the Cold War, the Eastern European bloc, all those smaller countries that were part of the Soviet Union, start breaking up. Mm-hmm. Yugoslavia is breaking up in a number of different pieces, and so you have issues in Bosnia with ethnic cleansing, Kosovo in '98, right? Yeah, uh, and there's there's some other things going on there as well as uh, Czechoslovakia will break up too 
from Czech Repu- uh, Czechoslovakia to Czech Republic and Slovakia, right. um, but not nearly as, as violent as the other as those other parts. And we talk about Bosnia and Kosovo. Um, but technology will be, I think, the one positive thing that keeps getting pushed through mm-hmm. is that yeah, the uh, the internet, eBay is founded in '95. Um, Amazon had already been founded by that time. Amazon.com. Mm-hmm. We're sort of moving towards uh, the dot-com boom. Yeah, Ask Jeeves is created in '96, uh-huh. which is one of the first uh, search engines. Uh, search engines. Can you imagine a world without search engines? It's hard to picture like, now. No Google. It's become um, such a 90... part of our day-to-day life. Yeah. Like, how many times do you Google stuff in a day? Oh, man. I don't even know. Uh, Search engine Google is founded in 98, by the way. Wow. Yeah. So there really was a a time without Google. (laughs) BG. (laughs) Uh, Also, uh, in the the kind of the science technology route, uh, cloning becomes an issue. In 97, Dolly the Peep have been cloned so in that up we don't talk about cloning as much anymore no it was a big it was a big issue in the late 90s and early 2000s yeah, there was a lot of uh, ethical concerns yeah but it's kind of and, uh, moved off the radar screen now for whatever reason i don't i'm not really sure why that just kind of vanished maybe it's they yeah, never really perfected a... the, the technique I mean, there's, there is still cloning experiments, but it became such a, a moral concern that a lot of countries outlawed it outright. Right. So there's still some some experiments I've heard of mice being cloned and uh, some other other things, but uh, the the issue of it becoming a human clone was such an issue that uh, a lot of places that I just outlawed it. Right. Um, mm. I don't know. If it just wasn't lucrative enough or there wasn't couldn't perfect the technology or what the deal was on that. Fascinating. I know and kind of going back to technology, Napster ninety nine, which will mm-hmm. become a huge issue in the early two thousands. Yeah, it changed but, the industry. Yeah. Um but uh we talked about gun control. Uh Columbine happens in ninety nine. Right. Which I don't think it's the first school shooting, but it definitely is the biggest. It certainly sparks a, a, a huge uh, debate and conversation about guns and school and kids and, mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah. Um, so, oh, yeah. In 99, the day of 6 billion, proclamate, proclaimed 6 billion living human in the world is born. So we hit 6 billion people in 1999. So many of us, which we're more now. Or I think, I think we made it over seven billion. Yeah, we've uh, we've increased exponentially. So there's there's a lot of stuff going on in the '90s. I have a, a very long list here; it's like six pages long. But I tried to streamline that because <laughs> no one really wants me to read off it <laughs> year by year of what's happening in the '90s. So I think the big issue, uh, big some of the big topics there. Uh, being the Cold War ending and kind of the aftermath of that, uh, science and technology really taking off and becoming much more center to our to our lives. Uh, Google 
and uh, an Amazon. There's some pop culture stuff in here too, if you want to hear. Yeah. In 1997, I think it's yeah, the first Harry Potter book was published. Right. So think about that for a minute. Now, was that an immediate success? I feel like it t- kind of took some time to snowball and become a, a Honestly, big international. I don't, I don't remember the first book coming out. I was, okay. I guess, kind of young. And I also wasn't allowed to read them. Mm-hmm. But, uh, they had to do with witchcraft so my parents were like you don't watch those or don't read those and later don't watch the movies mm-hmm. i remember one of the later books becoming extremely popular around christmas time when they were getting ready to ship out and there were like millions of copies already bought and they hadn't yeah. even shipped out yet pre-sold and it was just, yeah i forget if that was the sixth or the, or the seventh book i guess there's not seven books i guess it was just six there's seven is there seven books mm-hmm Mark McGuire hits his 70 home runs to break the single season record, ah. which actually has a, a, a big deal uh, with rejuvenating baseball. Apparently, baseball as a, as a sport had fallen off. Yeah, it kind of slumps a little bit. And then uh, with the whole uh, home run race, because I think Mark McGuire was racing with Sammy Sosa. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm reading that wrong. Uh, but no, they, right. he he, uh, he made 70 home runs in a single season, which was the record at the time. Yeah. I remember I had his baseball card from a box of cereal. Oh, wow. Then uh, didn't he, in the early 2000s, he had a, uh, the whole steroid thing, right? I think so, yeah. So I'll look that up. He, his, uh, his record on the Hall of Fame was denoted with an asterisk because of that. Yeah. Tarnished, which I think caused baseball to kind of slump again too. Right. But he's <laughs> like, oh, they're all on steroids. Baseball um, in general, that because of uh, because of cable sports kind of rising in the '90s, with ESPN gaining some market yeah. share. There's a lot of uh, a lot of increase in action sports. BMX kind of becomes a thing. Oh right, yeah. So you have these like these more high speed action intense sports, and baseball has a lot of uh, dead time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's more of a slower it's, sport in comparison. It's fun to, to watch in person. I I haven't gotten able to sit and watch a whole game on TV, but uh, it is a lot of fun to watch in person. I've been to a couple games. I will always fondly remember watching. Uh, I think it was the 2007 World Series where the Red Sox finally won. (laughs) That was an enjoyable series. But that is next, the next decade. Yes, it is. I'm skipping ahead. Sorry. You're skipping ahead. Kind of getting into our our own childhood memories here. Yeah, we're we're both officially on the scene. Yeah. You were born in the 80s and I was born in the 90s. Yep. No, uh, I guess no timeline would be rem- any timeline would be remiss in the 1990s without the Y2K scare. Yes, do you remember that? <laughs> I do remember that. <laughs> so yeah, I remember waiting up till midnight that that New Year's. Yeah, I do too. Wondering what would happen. So we're all still here. 
I uh, my family was not concerned about it at all. No, they were they they thought it was all hooey, and we're not. Worried. I don't. I don't really remember. I don't think my family were all that worried because I remember most of my, like my siblings and my parents had all, like all gone to bed <laughs> for that New Year's. <laughs> <laughs> but I was I was kind of concerned. I was kind of kind of. Uh, interested to see what would happen if anything yeah it did seem like there were some legitimate concerns also that's my earliest memory of uh toilet paper hoarding being a thing which is also oh, relevant really? to 2020 yeah i yeah. remember a lot of people were buying toilet paper and toilet paper was hard to find all of a sudden i didn't re- i don't remember that I in 1999 1999 at least where uh, where i was living Maybe that wasn't was like, a worldwide problem. Well, I'm sure it was. I just was 12 years old and not thinking about toilet paper that much. <laughs> well, I was, uh, I would have been seven years old and that was all I could think about. So there you go. <laughs> well, seven, <laughs> seven years old. That's a, that's a big deal. Having plenty of TP. Yeah. I remember there was a lot of celebration. The 1990s were kind of an important time in, in film history because there's kind of an independent cinema movement for the first time yeah the the technology has gotten to the point where almost anybody can get access to a camera of and produce some high quality footage there's uh the sundance film festival has kind of uh been created and established as a place where not just where movies of all different kinds can get seen but also where movies can get purchased. And there's a big boom in uh, spec scripts, which are scripts written by unknown authors and then being bought by Hollywood studios to turn into movies. So it's an important year in uh, an important decade in movie history also. Um, that is interesting. I didn't, I hadn't really thought through that. Yeah. Tombstone is interesting because it's a more traditional picture kind of in the middle of this melee. Steven Soderbergh came on the scene with a movie called Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Um, the Coen brothers becoming more established by this time, and we'll talk about them more in a future episode. But the, you're oh, starting to true. see more and more independent cinema and cinema that's, um, I guess, less traditional and less confined by Hollywood standards. Yeah. Both in terms of content and in terms of uh, technology. Because one of the biggest hits of the decade is a movie called Blair Witch Project, which was shot on little home video cameras. That's right. Digital technology. That was a, that was a big deal. It's a huge deal. Shot for very that little game. money, made a great deal of money. <laughs> yeah. It was for a long time the, the highest. In, in fact, it may still be the, the biggest ratio of uh, profits to budget ever. So that's just a little snapshot of the 90s. Yeah. Thank you for your uh, your research. There's a lot that we could talk about. There is, there is a lot to talk about. But I think, but I think we have, uh, we reached the end of our time. <laughs> we have reached the end. Thank you so much for listening. 
Uh, thank you for joining us. If you joined us way back on uh, episode one with the great train robbery, thanks for riding that train all this way with us. We really appreciate it. We've enjoyed having you along. There is one more episode, remember, Ben. There's one more to come. We're talking about No Country for Old Men for the 2000s. And I am very excited. I've never seen No Country for Old Men. No, I actually haven't either. So it'll this be, will be uh, exciting. a good, good time for both of us. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss that episode. You can get uh, your episodes downloaded automatically to your podcast player of choice, whether you're using Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or whatever tool you're using. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss anything uh, or any of our fabulous mini-sodes also. And tell your friends. Pass it we are on. on. We are on Twitter and Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We're like the legend of Wyatt Earp. The more you share us, the the bigger we become. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that kind of broke, yeah. That kind of broke down. <laughs> we'll work on it. <laughs> Maybe Wyatt Earp should become our new logo. Don't forget to vote. Uh, if you want to, to hear me singing a theme song from the Aristocats, there's still a, uh, a poll up on... Is it on Twitter? There is a poll on Twitter. I, I The poll actually just says for you to watch Aristocats. I was suggested that you should live stream yourself singing it. <laughs> but uh, I can put a new poll up if people want to see that. <laughs> if we you want to see, see how that, many people... then definitely Let reach out know. to us. Send us an email, popstorian at gmail.com. Uh, we're on Twitter, at popstorian, on Instagram, at popstorian, on YouTube, at popstorian, Facebook, popstorian. Popstorian. Popstorian is basically the gist of what we're trying to say. I wish we could get like Morgan Freeman to say popstorian for us. Popstorian. Popstorian, Popstorian. Morgan Freeman. All right. Probably enough. (laughs) Bye. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Popstorian podcast. Be sure to subscribe. You can find us online at popstorian.com or on Facebook and Twitter. Tune in next time for more of the history of popular culture.